sexual health is part of of normal health, right? Sexual health is normal health. It's part of our total well-being. And, and so I think it's really important that we have these conversations because it affects a lot of people. And, you know, I think just ha- having more information is power. Though we may not discuss it much, using vaginal moisturizers and lubricants is very common. But because it's not something we talk about, many of us may not feel comfortable navigating the lubricants aisle or confident picking out a product that's right for us. Dr. John Pennycuff joined the Women's Health Cast to open up a conversation about why people use vaginal moisturizers and lubricants, the variety of available products, and what we should consider when choosing a moisturizer or lubricant for ourselves. Dr. Pennycuff is a fellowship-trained physician in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. Today, I am joined by Dr. John Pennycuff to talk about vaginal moisturizers, lubricants, and how to choose the right products. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a definitely a topic that I think um, a lot of people are interested in. It's certainly a passion of mine to talk about it. Well, I wanted to ask, I guess, like why this is a passion of yours. So I'm so excited. I'm thrilled to be talking about this with you today. And this episode was actually your idea. And it's always really exciting to me when people with an area of expertise come to me and say, like, I want to talk about this on the podcast. I want to make sure people learn about it. So can you tell me a little bit about why this topic is so important to you? Well, I think a lot of patients come to our offices, whether, you know, they're coming not necessarily with sexual dysfunction and they have a lot of questions about lubricants, vaginal moisturizers. What are these products? What's the difference between these products? Where can I get these products? And I think that there are a lot of providers that just don't know how to answer these questions. And so we sort of just say, well, just go see what's in the aisles at CVS or Walgreens or your local pharmacy. And the truth of the matter is they go and there might be a couple of brands, but there's that's not really representative of actually what's out there. And there actually are some guidelines on how we can best counsel our patients on choosing a moisturizer, on choosing a vaginal lubricant, and um, to to make sure that they're that the product is best suiting them. I want to start by learning a little bit more about vaginal moisturizers. So these products are a little bit less familiar to me. Um, can you tell us like what is a vaginal moisturizer and what makes it different than a lubricant? So I really think it's important to just first of all think about the the. The title, like moisturizer, it's no different than like a moisturizer you put on your face. The idea is the product is designed to bring moisture or water to the the vaginal tissue. So the difference with moisturizers is that you use them regularly, you know, two or three times a week. And these are products that are specifically designed to bring water to the tissue. How, How do they work? How does their... As them as a product, kind of how do they perform that function? So generally, these products are, are water-based. And so they're either going to be compounds that hold on to a lot of water and release the water over time. An example of this is hyaluronic acid. Or they're just going to be water themselves. They're sort of um, other ingredients to just have sort of a, a liquid that then the water is released into the, to the tissue. And these can be, you know, applied, like I said, a couple of times a week. They may come with applicators. They may not. Um, but there are some general guidelines on how you pick a vaginal moisturizer. 
and who should be using them. So I would love to know more about why someone would use them, why you would recommend that a patient who's seeing you um, would to use a vaginal moisturizer, what kind of issues they can help address or improve for someone. Definitely. So patients that have a sensation of dry vagina and may experience the symptoms as kind of like itching or painful intercourse that feels dry or sandpaper um, or even just vaginal irritation. And this can occur most commonly after menopause as the levels of circulating estrogen uh, decrease in, in, a, in a woman. Um, and so patients may, you know, may want something that they can use, kind of they can apply weekly to help deal with these, these symptoms of irritation um, and sort of dryness um, and vaginal discomfort. Are there any times you would not recommend using a vaginal moisturizer? The only time that I would say you wouldn't want to use a vaginal moisturizer is if you know that you have an allergy or a sensitivity to one of the products in a vaginal moisturizer. Certainly if a healthcare provider recommends against using a product like that. And then the other thing I would say is if you're using it and you're not really getting the results you're looking for, that's totally a reason to see a healthcare provider. Because again, could there be an underlying infection? Could there be something going on like that you think is making, that is making sex painful and you think it's due to vaginal dryness, but it's something else like pelvic floor tension or pelvic floor myalgia. And so I think, you know, using the product is great, but if it's not really working the way you expected it to work, or it's not working for the patient the way that the provider's expecting it to work, then I think that, you know, that that could be a reason to, to have an evaluation. This might seem like a basic question, but um, I guess I just don't know literally how someone uses the product. So we get it prescribed or, or you know, we're advised to use it. We've got this product now. And then like, how do we apply it? Um, how often? How do we know how much is the right amount to use? Just sort of the day-to-day questions, I guess. So, you know, in general, the products, you know, you follow the guidelines and and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, um, about like sort of how to pick a a product. But when you think about using a vaginal moisturizer, generally these are things that can be purchased. These are products that can be purchased over the counter in pharmacies, drugstores, on the internet. Um, They sort of can be used as often as you need to get symptom relief. Typically that's two or three times. Some products come with an applicator that helps um, bring the product into the vagina. Some women find it's just easier to apply the product with their fingers and then wash up after it. And it really just depends on the patient. You know, there's not a sense that you are going to be using too much or do I have to dose it correctly? It just, you use the product to, to, um, sort of meet the, the needs of symptom relief. And actually, there's, a, there's actually some very good data that suggests that these non-hormonal products are, can be just as effective as some of our um, local vaginal estrogen therapies that we have. And vaginal estrogen therapy is very, very safe um, in, you know, in the general population. And in, honestly, in most populations, uh, the vaginal estrogen products uh, formulations are safe. But the nice thing about vaginal moisturizers is you don't need a prescription the way you do with vaginal estrogens. 
Um, and they can sort of be applied the way the patient wants to, to apply them. So that was going to be my question is where we can find it, um, whether it requires a prescription or not, or whether it's something we can get over the counter. And it sounds like prescription not required. No prescription required. You can buy it over the counter. Lots of resources, um, but a good resource to, you know, I personally like like to think about shopping locally and we have a, a great resource right in our back door and that is a woman's touch. Um, Ellen, the proprietor of a woman's touch has just an amazing uh, array of products and, uh, and is very knowledgeable about the products. I've actually met with her recently and, and she understands sort of the things I'm talking about um, in this podcast and make sure that the, her products matches those recommendations. And again, I'm not, you know, I have no stock in a woman's touch. It's just such a great resource here in our own backyard. How, how broad of a selection is there for these kinds of products? And how do we know if we're looking at this, you know, field of options for vaginal moisturizers, how to choose the correct one or the one that's going to meet our individual needs? How do we know what to look for? So that is an amazing question. And I actually think that's kind of where a lot of providers when they're giving counseling are like, I'm not super sure what to tell my patient. Maybe they've heard of one or two products. Um, maybe they have seen studies on one or two products, but the truth of the matter is this sort of industry has really exploded over the last decade. And so patients have in an enormous amount of products at their disposal and so it's kind of hard to know, like, is this a good product? Is this not a good product? Will this work for me? Will this not work for me? And so there's a few guidelines that sort of uh, should be considered when um, you're con- when choosing either a vaginal moisturizer or a vaginal lubricant. We've talked a little bit now about sort of what vaginal moisturizers are. They're more of a um, regular use sort of maintenance product, it almost sounds like to me. Um, on the other hand, or the other area of topic we're going to talk about today, what then is a, a lubricant and how is that different from a moisturizer? So a lubricant um, definitely differs from a vaginal moisturizer in that the lubricant is used at the time of intercourse um, or penetration. And the idea is the lubricant reduces friction to make penetration either, you know, however that may be, um, to make it more comfortable for the individual. So lubricants kind of come in four different varieties. They can be oils, which we can talk about. They can be water-based. They can be silicone-based, or they can be hybrids, which tend to be um, silicone and water uh, based together that then have special ingredients to allow the water and the silicone to mix together. And there are considerations for, for example, if you're using barrier methods of protection, such as condoms, you can't use oils because the condoms can degrade, the oils can degrade the natural uh, latex of the condoms and cause condoms to break and then become ineffective. Also, if you're using any toys, um, sometimes toys are made um, of me- medical grade silicone, and so they're not compatible with silicone lubricants because, or hybrid lubricants because those lubricants can degrade the toys over time. Um, and, you know, not every toy has that, and so you can always look at the manufacturer's um, sort of 
uh, insert or pamphlet. Uh, but you know, those are things to consider when you're thinking about what are you going to use the lubricant for. So, beside the considerations you just mentioned of, um, you know, knowing whether you're using a barrier method of contraception like a condom, so that doesn't mix well with an oil-based method, and then silicone toys and silicone lubricant also not great together. Um, what are other considerations that people should think about when they're choosing a lubricant to make sure that it's a, a good choice for them? Yeah. So no matter what product you're looking at, whether it's a vaginal moisturizer um, or a lubricant, the first thing you need to think about is, is osmolality. And that's a fancy term that kind of just describes what is dissolved in the water in the product. And this really applies only for water-based products or hybrid lubricants that have a water component in them. And so the natural like osmolality or the number that we're looking for in the vagina is under 300. That's like where the, the vagina, like the tissue that's, it's like natural homeostatic number around 300. And so we want to find products. The ideal product has an osmolality that is less than 380 milliosms per kilogram. And that's, that's just like a fancy way of saying how much stuff is dissolved in the, in the water and then how that product will interact with the tissue. Because if the product and the tissue have similar um, osmolality, the product isn't going to push a bunch of water into the cells, nor is it going to pull a bunch of water out of the cells. What we find is that most products that are commercially available, the things that are on the pharmacy shelf are very hyper, um, have very high or are hyper osmolalic, which like in, on the order of 2000. So that's far, far greater than, um, the recommended ideal, um, of 380. And this recommendation actually comes from the World Health Organization. This isn't something I'm sort of making up or just pulling. There is a, some evidence behind it. But the problem is very few products have an ideal osmolality. So the WHO has said, well, you know, if we're not going to get like ideal, then acceptable is less than 1200. Nonetheless, there are many products out there that are very, very hyperosmal, um, that have, that are very hyperosmolalic. And so, you know, even though they said the upper level is 1200, it's the products that are commercially available far exceed that. So the truth is you need to find products that kind of ideally fall under 380, but really, if you can, if you can't find that, then 1200 is your number. Can I ask a little bit about what happens, I guess, if we're using a product that's a little high on that osmolality scale, if we're using something that's commercially available and is around more like that 2000 level? Sure. What happens? What does that feel like? So it can actually cause irritation. Um, and it's because it's, it can be, it can be harmful to the cells. So, you know, particularly in women who are postmenopausal, have low estrogen levels, maybe have had prior pelvic radiation for malignancy, 
are on certain medications to prevent breast cancer from coming back, like um, aromatase inhibitors or uh, selective estrogen receptor modulators, that tissue is very, very fragile. And so products that have a really high osmolality could be quite irritating, actually. And um, studies have also shown that high osmolality can also kind of break down the tissue and make it more susceptible to certain infections and diseases, like sexually transmitted infections. So osmolality is one big consideration when you're choosing a um, vaginal moisturizer or a lubricant. Um, what about vaginal pH? I have I've heard that as a concern of something to think about when you're picking one as well. Definitely. Um, less well studied than osmolality, but definitely a consideration. The you know, the ideal pH or where like the healthy state of the vagina is somewhere between 3.8 and 4.5. So it tends, the vagina tends to be, um, more acidic, um, before menopause, after menopause, it tends to become more neutral. Um, but the truth of the matter is the healthy vaginal pH is less than 4.5. And so probably you want to find a product that's pH balanced. We see pH balance in a lot of products. And so, a, so you want to find something that's probably greater than three because anything less than three can be irritating, but is less than four and a half or so. And that kind of is in the uh, normal pH of the vagina. Now, individuals may be using lubricants for other purposes or other forms of, of penetration, for example, um, anal intercourse and the pH of the anus and rectum is seven. So there are actually special lubricants for anal penetration that are pH balanced to that part of the body. Um, so it's really truly not like one product fits everything. What about, are there other ingredients that can be in some lubricants that like that people should avoid or that like certain populations need to think about avoiding. I guess I'm kind of thinking about, um, I guess parabens or the things that can have a link to cancer. Great. Um, so yeah. So when you, if you turn over to the bottle of any sort of lubricant or shampoo or any sort of cosmetic product, there's about 20 ingredients and words and numbers that we none of us can pronounce. And I think it's like, how do we decipher what, what these are? And is it safe? And can I use it? Or should I use it? Um, the first things first is you, you see in water-based lubricants, you see um, a lot of glycol, um, like propylene glycol, for example, but glycols. And what glycols are, they're added to sort of um, make the product feel slippery um, and to make it feel wet. Uh, and again, these are, these are called excipients. They're added. These are products that are added for a variety of reasons to like change the feel of the product, to make the product more stable, um, on the shelf. Or uh, there's also products that are, that have things, ingredients that are added to make the product do something like be flavored or tingle or feel cooling. Um, so one of the first products are glycols. And like I said, glycols are added, um, to sort of change the consistency and to make it feel more slippery, like as a kind of a humectant. Um, but glycols can be irritating. They can also feed um, certain bacteria and yeast, so they can cause infections. So if I have a patient who started on a lubricant and, um, you know, that patient comes to me with 
like vaginitis or an infection, I may ask like, do you kind of see a relationship with the lubricant and, and these infections? And it can get a little bit difficult, but something to think about. Parabens is a big, um, it's a, it's a big like topic, right. Of debate, right. Everyone's, you know, talking about parabens, you look at products and they market themselves as being paraben free. Like what is a paraben? Uh, parabens are added to, um, increase shelf life. And parabens are in everything. They're in our shampoo. They're in our cosmetics. They're in our suntan lotion. They're, they're in everything. And there was some concern because they have, they're weakly, um, estrogenic and they've sort of been labeled, uh, uh, endocrine disruptor. There hasn't, there's been some data that associates parabens with breast cancer, but we can't say it causes it. And parabens have also been found in high levels in individuals who don't have cancer. But again, if someone feels very strongly that they don't want to use a paraben because they have a cancer history, they're have high risk because of their family. Okay. Well, we can direct them to non paraben containing products if that's important to them. And, th- and those products do exist. Um, you know, I think, uh, another thing people can have allergies to anything. So example, um, that I learned about recently was aloe vera. Aloe is in everything, but, there is a, sex, a segment of the population that has an allergy to aloe vera. So the manufacturer doesn't use denatured aloe vera. You could have potentially have uh, an allergy to it. And again, it's important to understand this because aloe vera sort of has this, it's soothing, it's natural, it's not, it's not going to hurt me or irritate me, but for some people it might. Um, and again, there are other things that are in the product. Um, Nanoxyl 9 is a spermicide. Um, people can be irritated, um, by this that can cause tissue irritation. Um, there are things like, uh, menthol or lidocaine or capsaicin. And these are things that menthol cools. So cooling sensation, capsaicin is warming, lidocaine is numbing, and these can also cause, you know, irritation. And then finally, there are things that are added like chlorhexidine to, to increase shelf life. And that can also be irritating to, to patients and, and cause, um, and it's been associated with an increase in, in STIs. So something that's cool about, um, a woman's touch, the store that's here in Madison, Wisconsin is like in the lube section, there are samples and you can kind of feel how things feel. And I guess that made me wonder, is there a way I would hate to find out about an allergy um, while using the lubricant, basically. And I don't know if there's a way to to test it in a lower stakes moment um, to determine whether something, we might be sensitive to something in the product. Um, so I think a good way is, first of all, I, go to a store, uh, particularly if you can go to a, you know, a woman's touch, they're so knowledgeable and they're going to help meet your, what you're looking for with the products that they have to offer. Um, but in any case, no matter where you go, go explore the product, right? Go put it on the back of your hand, feel it. What does it feel like to you? Do you think that that's the feel you're looking for? Does it dry out too quickly? Does it get sticky? Does it feel slippery enough? You know, I think experiment with the products. And then I think also putting a little something on the back of your hand, if you get irritated on the back of your hand, that's pretty tough skin, so if it irritates the back of your hand, it might irritate the more fragile tissue 
of the genitals. We've talked a lot about um, products that are specifically produced to be lubricants or moisturizers. Um, I've also heard of things like olive oil or coconut oil being referred to as, quote, natural lubricants. And I wondered, are, are they safe to use? And then are there other household products that are maybe not safe to use that um, perhaps should be avoided? Um, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of thought that, like, olive oil, coconut oil... Um, are they're natural, so they're safe. And natural doesn't always mean safe. Um, you know, plenty of plants out in the world are are toxic. Um, so the thing of okay, so coconut oil contains something called lauric acid, and lauric acid is been shown in many in you know a handful of studies. And again, these things are not very well studied. Um, a handful of study to um, decrease uh, bacteria, they're antibacterial, and also they're antifungal. And so there was a study that showed um, that individuals who what, um, did gum massages with uh, coconut oil, it decreased the lactobacillus population in the mouth. And actually the lactobacillus population in the vagina is protective. It's a good bacteria that we want in the vagina. And so, but there have been other studies that show that it doesn't affect the lactobacilli. So, you know, we don't know. Uh, there's not good data. There, I was talking to Ellen about olive oil, and she said that she had reviewed a study that um, showed massage of baby skin with olive oil and that it actually causes the skin to slough, called desquamation. So she doesn't recommend olive oil either. I wasn't able to find it myself when I did a literature search, but again, I... But these things haven't been studied. And I would, in general, say... If, if you're looking for a product, there are lots of products that have been designed for the purpose of lubrication. Some of them have even gone through FDA clearance um, in, in order to be deemed safe. And so my general recommendation is, since we don't really know about the oils, to use a product maybe that that falls in the guidelines of osmolality, pH balance, and doesn't have a bunch of other things that like, you know, the glycols, like the glycerins that, that can irritate or cause infection or things, things of that nature. Yeah, I wanted to ask this a little earlier, but I will still ask it now. Um, is it normal to need a lubricant during sexual activity? Is that a common thing or something that we should be concerned about? So I think that the important word is normal. Um, cause well, how do we define normal? It's common to need lubricants and individuals even who haven't gone through menopause might find from time to time they need a little lubricant. Some individuals may find that a lubricant helps increase their satisfaction or their pleasure during, um, sexual activities. And so I think it's, it's a, it's, it's common to use lubricants. Um, it may be more common, or more necessary for patients who are postmenopausal or have changes associated with medications or pelvic radiation, things of that nature. Um, but, you know, I think, again, it's exploring, seeing if it's something that works, something that helps, you know, improve your quality of life. So I think it's totally, it's totally common um, and definitely part of the normal. And absolutely nothing to feel um, 
concerned or ashamed about. It's uh, no important. Definitely, definitely. You know what I would say is you can add vaginal moisturizers, you can add lubricants, products like that. But if you find that that intercourse is still painful, that penetration is painful, that these products aren't working the way you're expecting, well, then that might be a time to to talk to a healthcare provider because there may be something else going on or, or an evaluation might, you know, might elicit something that, that a lubricant or a moisturizer isn't going to fix. So maybe speaking of other options, like if vaginal moisturizers or lubricants aren't addressing all the issues, I kind of wanted to circle back on vaginal estrogen, which you mentioned earlier. So when, when would you look at vaginal estrogen as an option for people? And then are there special concerns or considerations we should be aware of before using it? One of my particular interests is in patients who have a history of cancer. And then, you know, how do we help with the pelvic floor symptoms and the intimate and sexual well-being? Um, the use of vaginal moisturizers and lubricants is supported by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the North American Menopause Society for women who are survivors of breast cancer as a first-line treatment for vaginal dryness. Um, and so I will often start there, but then, you know, it doesn't, maybe they're not completely satisfied with the results or they find that they're still having uh, painful intercourse due to, to vaginal dryness. And so one of the things that we'll often talk about is, are these patients candidates for vaginal estrogen, which um, can help with some of these sexual symptoms of vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, things of that nature. And historically, they sort of been told, well, no, you had a, a hormonally driven cancer or you had like an estrogen receptor positive cancer, so you can't have vaginal estrogen. Well, I think that we need to talk more about what does the data show and then how do we help patients make evidence-based and patient-informed decision. Um, so the, fir the first thing to know is that vaginal estrogen, local estrogen therapy, doesn't carry all of the same risks as oral or patch estrogen, which is systemic. Um, the local estrogen therapy, which comes in creams, rings, and tablets, um, will never get your... It is absorbed initially in the first couple of uh, weeks, uh, into the blood, but does not get the level of hormone higher than the normal postmenopausal woman. And um, there was a recent uh, review of, of all the existing evidence. And the truth of the matter is for women who are survivors of breast cancer, um, vaginal estrogen has never been shown to produce primary breast cancer, doesn't cause primary breast cancer. It's not been associated with recurrence if you've already been diagnosed with breast cancer, and it doesn't change mortality. So I think it's having that conversation of this is the data we know. And what's important to you is, is staying away from all estrogen important? Okay, well, this is what we can offer. Or is quality of life and maybe fixing some of these symptoms important to you? And there's not a right or a wrong, but it's helping the patient understand what the patient's values are and what their goals of care are. I'm really glad you mentioned that. So I... Um, have seen a urologist posting on Twitter, actually, uh, about vaginal estrogen's um, effectiveness with recurrent urinary tract infections and um, how big of a quality of life improvement it can be. Can you tell me more about the safety and then how you counsel a patient through whether it's the right choice for them? 
Definitely. So the the safety of vaginal estrogen is is that it's very very safe. It's very well tolerated by most women. Um, you know, some women don't like the mess of the cream. They prefer the ring or the tablet. Um, and some women have side effects, and and that's with any medication. Some women find that they have breast tenderness. Um, some women will find some burning or um, irritation, particularly with the cream. And so I think. First of all, it's discussing how, you know, how I help any patient make a decision is discussing what her options are. So one of, you know, particularly like, let's say I have a patient with a history of breast cancer. I'll say, this is what you've been doing. The moisturizers and lubricants are not working. This is what I can offer vaginal estrogen. I'll often get, I'll often hear, okay, well, I was told I can never be on any estrogens. And then it's having that discussion. Well, this is what the data shows. It's never been associated with um, primary breast cancer, recurrence of breast cancer, or mortality changes. It can help improve your quality of life. And it comes in these formulations. Is this something you might be interested in? And then the final thing I'll offer is we can talk to your oncologist. We can talk to your um, primary care doctor. We can sort of coordinate something. And you know, I think then the patient has all the information and she can decide if this is going to work for me or not. Is there anything else you think is important for people to know about vaginal estrogen? Vaginal estrogen has been shown to be effective in treating recurrent urinary tract infections in postmenopausal women. It can help with some of the lower urinary tract symptoms like like urgency frequency. Uh, it can all, and then it can also help with some of the sexual side effects. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that can be used. So overall, when you look at sort of the scope of your practice and the scope of people you work with, what do you wish more of us knew or understood about vaginal moisturizers, about lubricants, and um, the way they can just sort of change our experience and our our day-to-day well-being? You know, I, I, my hope is that having this discussion will give people who are talking about moisturizers or perhaps those who are consuming moisturizers a better understanding of how to pick the products. Um, you know, in the in truth, I wish that more people had access to more products. Um, and I also wish that the companies were a little bit more transparent about sort of the qualities of their product, like the osmolality, the pH, when it's applicable, things of that nature. This information can be a little bit difficult to find some time. And, um, you know, and I think finally, I want to just normalize the use of lubricants, moisturizers. This isn't something that patients should feel shamed of. This should be something that we just consider, you know, normal. None of us feel strange about putting moisturizer on our face, you know, in order to prevent against the harmful effects of the sun or to make sure that our skin is moisturized. And, you know, I think we should feel the same about using a lubricant or a moisturizer or a product like that. It should be no different than moisturizing our face. I'm so glad we got to spend this time together today because I feel like... Nobody, like, nobody talks about these things, and it's, like, embarrassing, or you feel like it's wrong to even, like, consider needing it. But, um, you, but you shouldn't feel like that. That's the point. No. You, you, this is, sexual health is part of, of normal health, right? Sexual health is normal health. It's part of our total well-being. And, and so I think it's really important that we have these conversations because it affects a lot of people. And, you know, I think just ha- having more information is power. I could not agree more. <laughs> Thank you um, so much for speaking with me today, Dr. Pennycuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's, been, it's been so much fun, and I always appreciate this. 
Links to resources for choosing vaginal moisturizers and lubricants are available on our podcast page at womenshealthcast.podbean.com or in the show notes of your podcast app. The Women's Healthcast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Healthcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening.